What is crackalacking Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you fueled as always by caffeine, lots of pop punk and Hardwood Knox. Adam is here for this episode. We dive into one of our trademark mailbags, had a ton of questions and all of them were spectacular. So thank you. Keep those questions coming. You can always respond to obviously the solicitation on Twitter at Hardwood Knox or at MBA underscore math, but send questions in even if we haven't sent out a tweet for it since we do do these weekly mailbags. We can store it for a different time. At Frommel09, you can add him or DM him. I'm at uh, Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. Um, and before we get started, as I stumble through this, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you get your podcast. If this is your first time listening to us for whatever reason, please consider throwing us that permanent subscription. We cover the entire league at large. And we're pretty good at doing so in my completely unbiased, unskewed opinion. Follow us on Twitter. I already mentioned it, at Hardware Knox. We're on YouTube as well. Hit that subscribe button, youtube.com, search Hardware Knox. We'll be right there. And follow us on Instagram, at Hardwood underscore Knox. Now, let's dive into this mailbag. I think we're like 15 questions deep this time. We got we got through a lot of them. Might have even been more than 15 questions. But let's get through this mailbag. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli, coming at you with our latest mailbag episode as we move a little bit deeper into this 2021-22 NBA season that has already produced a number of compelling storylines and a number of twists and turns. And we're going to be diving into those as soon as we find out how Dan's doing today. I am fantabulous. I'm fueled as usual by caffeine, lots of pop punk, and of course, the Hardwood Knox podcast. So how could I be doing anything but grand? How are you doing? I'm good. I just I, these days I just imagine that you're just like playing a constant bing bong in your head. Like whenever you're having a conversation, like you just keep hearing that sound pop up again and again. The Is that I pretty think, accurate? Uh, it's fairly accurate. Except I keep hearing the the bearded guy like doing his like but like motorboats and whatever the hell he was doing during that is the one that stuck with me the most. So, uh, look, it's a good time to be even a deadingly disenchanted Knicks fan. They have the Knicks have the best offense in the league as we record this number one in point scored per possession. How about them apples? It's pretty solid. I mean, this, this team is super fun. The, the defense seems good. The, the offense seems really good. I'm, I'm probably not doing quite as well as you because I have no reason to actually cheer for the Knicks, but all, all is well. It Fuck was a fun Trey Halloween Young. weekend. Fuck Trey Young. Yeah. 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 I know. Um, you know, the, the same Trey Young who is adjusting better than other stars are adjusting to the free throw rule changes. Just putting that out there. Offense has been pretty spotty, though. Like, it's, it's been bad. Some, there's like a leeway there, but the Nets have been more disappointing than Atlanta by far. It does. It does feel like the source of those half half court frustrations, though, are more the supporting cast than Trey himself, though, because he has upped his two point efficiency. He's still finding ways to get to the line. He's cutting back on his turnovers. He's a little more engaged on defense. It feels like he has been the huge bright spot for Atlanta. Whereas a lot of the young role players who were supposed to, if not take step forwards, at least continue down the paths that they started during last year's Eastern Conference Finals run have not progressed as expected. Yeah, I th- look, I think the team in general will start finishing better at the rim and they'll probably hit more of their threes. I think they're, yeah, they're at sub 33% on above the break three-point shooting. Well, that's down league-wide this year. So we'll see the average on above the break threes is 33.2% right now. So they're actually not that bad compared to look, you know how I feel about the Hawks. Either way, if you're, if you're panicking about the Hawks right now, just stop, just, just go look up the definition of small sample size. Listen to the previous episode, which Adam mentioned before we started recording, where I called it a truth 
that the Atlanta Hawks will finish with the second best record in the Eastern Conference. Probably not so spicy after watching how the Nets and the Bucks have played, but Milwaukee just is not healthy. I can't bring myself to panic about that. I know that they're they've been so bad, but Dante DiVincenzo, Brooke Lopez, and Drew Holiday. And yes, I know DiVincenzo hasn't played at all. That's the point. They've all played a combined total of 71 minutes this season. Come talk to me when that number grows a little bit. Exactly. I, I have no reason to doubt this Bucks team, which has the benefit of continuity following a title run. Like there's there's no reason to doubt this team right now. We did not have any questions about the Bucks or the Hawks for this mailbag, though, which normally drops on Mondays. Past two weeks, it's come on Tuesdays um, because of scheduling conflicts with myself and, and also Adam. It'll probably get back to Mondays eventually, we assume. Who knows? We do whatever the hell we want around here. But we do publish a mailbag a week. And the first question that we're going to get to comes from Jacob Bourne. He asks, is the Knicks 5-1 and one start a trick-or-treat? And they could be 6-1 and one by the time you're listening to this, or 5-2. and two, But based off me just scoreboard watching right now, since we're recording this during games, I'm going to predict 6-1. and one. But Adam, is the Knicks' start a trick or a treat? I think it's more of a treat. You know, obviously they're not going to keep playing at like a 70 win pace or whatever. Are you sure? No, absolutely not. I've (laughs) I've learned a long time ago not to be sure about anything whatsoever, but it does feel like, you know, you touched on it already, just how good this offense has been. And we have reason to believe see last year that the defense is only going to improve. This, this team is healthy. It's deeper. Julius Randle has continued to be a quality offensive hub. RJ Barrett seems to be taking strides in the right direction. Um, we've had a lot of people commenting on the NBA math TPA charts and pointing out that RJ Barrett is in exactly where you don't want to be. Uh, and then citing like the, the defensive field goal percentage allowed when he's guarding people. First of all, that stat is bogus. Don't worry about it. But second of all, like the, the DPS stuff, like it, it does undersell what he's doing a little bit because he is taking on difficult assignments and all that. So he's been totally fine. And it, it, it feels like if you go top to bottom on this roster, like Derek Rose has been really effective on offense. Kemba Walker looks at least somewhat resurgent. Mitchell Robinson is healthy. Just piece after piece is clicking. And if all of them come together, especially with improved versions of Obi Toppin and a version of Emmanuel Quickly who might eventually make a shot, this team has a lot of juice. I, I have no reason to doubt that this is a playoff lock closer to a legitimate contender than not. There is I, so defensive field goal percentage when you're not talking about the rim, there's obviously a lot of noise. Bogus feels like a stretch, but I think what you said hits the nail on the head is even if it's not, bogus the scope of the assignments that he's covering matters in this situation he's like but it, it, i mean it is bogus though like because you only have be- so much control of it. it's better to force a pass than to have a shot go up against you in most situations like it's not accounting for the quality of the shot contests like that's one of those stats where if you're citing it it's either agenda driven or you don't know any better and neither of those is a good thing the thing that i think this team is more real than not are they the best offense in the league I don't know. And I think what's been interesting. No, you you do know. You do know. What's been interesting is that I don't know that they've done this because anyone, I I mean, has Derrick Rose been their most consistent player this season? They've done it because they have so many options, which is good. I don't think this is a bad thing that if one's not working, uh, they have all these other guys that are going to be able to create their own shots or make shots, which is something they didn't have last year. Even RJ Barrett included. uh, We have a question. I'll find it about his most improved player case, which is, you know, it's going to be tough for him to win it, I think, because his offensive role is kind of so inconsistent. That works for this team, though. And so 
that question came from Juan Cifrian. I'm going to just loop it into this. Ask, can anyone compete with RJ Barrett for most improved player? I think yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll finish with that. It's the defense needs to pick up and like the, the net rating swings for their starting lineups are all over the place. They've been not great defensively with those guys. I think that speaks to the level of competition, how they're built. You have Mitch Robinson and you know, Julius Randall's got, I think he's legitimately good on defense. RJ Barrett's legitimately good on defense. I don't know how much better this team is built to get defensively though. And that would be just something to monitor. Now, I don't think it matters even a little bit if you're going to have the best offense in, in the NBA, if you're not elite defensively. And I think, look, you look at just, if you dig into their, their defensive, um, you know, just, just stats, like there's really nothing that's a huge outlier. There's opponents are probably going to start shooting better on above the break threes against them, but they also had a good three point defense last year. So maybe there's something there. It's also not, we just talked about how the league average is down so much to be 10th in opponent above the break free throw percentage. That's not this, this huge outlier even if you're not responsible for it i'm just curious to see you know as where things stand now and you're saying that this team is the best offense in the league 19th in defense i don't want to say that's their ceiling i'm just curious whether they have the the jet fuel without making a move to go even higher but i don't think there should be a question that this team is more real than not for anything and if anything i'm a little bit more impressed given how much relatively when you just dig into the data, how much the starting lineup has struggled against other units. I'm actually pleasantly surprised that they're not worse on the defensive end. You got rid of Reggie Bullock, who was your most important defender. Yes. You have Mitchell Robinson coming back. Like this team isn't built to be elite defensively. And it really leaned into offense. Kemba Walker will always try harder than you think on defense. That doesn't mean that he's good. Evan Fournier is like bad to whatever on that end. And you're going to be playing other guys where you just don't have a ton of real wings. Um, on this roster. And even if Julius Randle's good, which I think he is, Mitchell Robinson's good. You're always going to be, I think, vulnerable, especially when it comes to defending the perimeter a little bit. Again, you look at the opponent three-point shooting percentage right now, it doesn't matter. I'm just curious what the defensive ceiling on this team is. To the question about um, RJ Barrett being a most improved player, I think there's probably a little bit less hesitation when he's working off the dribble than there was last year. I'm just curious whether he'll have, and we've seen how much percentages and averages can swing in a game right now this season. He had that, God, I can't even remember the team, but he had the monstrous performance uh, over the week. Oh my God, I forget the team, but like his, his points per game average skyrocketed. Now all of a sudden he's gone from shooting under 33% on threes to like 38.9%. It's like, we're still so early. And while I think he'll be mentioned in the discussion, I think you're going to gravitate more towards people that have these just larger roles where it's a, a Tyler hero. Um, I want to steer clear from, from second year players totally. So I, maybe I won't go like looking at that route, but even a Desmond Bain, who's a sophomore might have just a bigger case than, than Barrett. So I think maybe he, if, if people really dig into the, I don't even know if it's defensive improvement, but the defensive role that he plays this season, he should be at least mentioned if he continues to keep this up at both ends, but I don't know if he's going to have the jet fuel to be like a top three I don't think he's even going to get mentioned. Like even after 35 points against the New Orleans Pelicans. That's what it was. Without without Brandon Ingram and they almost didn't win, by the The way. The zombie New Orleans Pelicans. Like he's still averaging only 17.2 points per game, which is less than last year. I don't think there's any doubt that RJ Barrett is an improved basketball player, but being an improved basketball player is not what wins you the most improved player award because you need statistical leaps and he is not set up in a role on this Knicks team that is going by design. Absolutely. But he's not set up 
in a role that's conducive to a massive points per game leap. He's not going to average 20 points a game on this team. There are too many scoring options. It's not how they're built. So, I mean, I, I think you can throw out a dozen candidates who are more likely to finish in the top three in the most improved player balloting down the road. Like right now, I would think the easy favorite is Miles Bridges, who just looks dominant for the Charlotte Hornets, has doubled his scoring average, almost touching 25 points a game right now. You could throw out Harrison Barnes. Is it sustainable? Probably not. But if we're just talking about these early season samples, what he's done in year 10 is remarkable. John Morant making the superstar leap. Like I think there are just there are so many candidates that Barrett just isn't set up to compete in that race, even if he is a better basketball player. And I cannot emphasize that enough that he continues to grow on both ends and he's going to be more and more valuable to this Knicks team as this Knicks team continues to get better. It's just not going to lead to that kind of award consideration. And, and again, it's by design. Relative to the field last year and what voters look for. So I'm not saying that this would be right if RJ gets the shaft completely this year, but his case as a sophomore is going to end up being stronger than it will be this year for most improved players. I would agree with that. Let's loop these two questions in together because this one, it's it's almost phrased like a joke, but I feel like it, I mean, we, we it feels like it bears asking, but always winter asks, why is Jokic so good at basketball? And then longtime listener Miroslav Shook asks, the Denver Nuggets have the second best net rating for a starting five in the league with Jamal Murray injured and MPJ's 40% true shooting. Is this six game start by Nicole Jokic better than the one last year? Someone responded, Dusan responded, if anyone's interested. Um, Jokic is plus 80 in his first six games. Nuggets are plus 27. Nuggets without Jokic are minus 53. The, the extent to which Nicole Jokic has had to carry this offense, even without Jamal Murray, has been borderline harrowing, especially when you look at how good Will Barton has been mpj's offensive performance was scarier than anything i saw on halloween weekend so far this season he just he cannot throw the proverbial beach ball in the ocean from the beach like, nothing is working it, the shots look good until they leave his hands and that's just kind of been the story for a lot of the offensive pieces in general and it has forced Jokic into taking on even more of a burden though not necessarily as a scorer where he's just like trying to get guys involved he's trying to go to work on the low blocks more when the offensive breakdowns are happening uh he's thrived as a rebounder he's playing a little bit more defense for a, a nuggets team that has been one of the best defensive squads in the nba to this season so i would argue that yeah his start has been better because he's had to deal with even more responsibility sans jamal murray for a vastly improved defensive team that while he's never going to be the true defensive centerpiece that result stems more from you know the everybody chipping in forcing turnovers not necessarily funneling everything towards him Rudy Gobert style he has had more responsibilities to shoulder and they have not been too large for him yeah I think that now more than ever there is a very legitimate case that he's the best player in basketball he I mean I don't want to speak in hyperbolic terms, but he would probably be my MVP pick right now. Jimmy Butler's right there. I think Jimmy Butler would be mine right now. Jim, funny enough, Jimmy Butler's still like a 50 to one odds to win MVP. So if you're, if you're a betting person, some nuggets numbers to consider their offense ranks in the first percentile so far without Jokic. That is disgusting. They have some all backup or bench heavy units that have just been in eyesore. I think Michael Malone um, in their wins over the Mavericks and who else did they beat? their past two games i'm just apparently my memory's blanking but over their past two games i think he's done a better job of sort of mixing up the rotations and we did see bones a little bit i believe 
But those units have been getting killed. And I think you're going to need to do – some people mentioned bringing Will Barton to the bench. I don't think you need to do that. You probably just need to stagger him more heavily. I think what it's going to come down to, though, Michael Porter Jr. just has to be better um, because you he's not been good. Look, when Nikola Jokic is on the floor, his true shooting is 43. When Nikola Jokic is off the floor, his true shooting is 32.4. Overall, last season, he was averaging 0.46 points per touch. He's at that's basically in half this season. He's at 0.255. I don't think those struggles are going to continue. He's actually using, by the way, and I thought you'd find this interesting, fewer dribbles per touch this year than he did last year. And so I do think his role is less streamlined because of the defensive tension he's receiving. And I do think the Nuggets are asking him to make different types of decisions, even if they're still relying heavily on Jokic to create everything. And then even a, a Will Barton and maybe even a Monte Morris to take more, more complicated shots. The, the ceiling of this team, Nicole Jokic is both its floor and its ceiling, but if they're going to get like the bump up, Michael Porter Jr. has the capacity to drag them down or take them to another level. And I think that's what's going to be huge. And it's, yeah, they'll be scarier if he's going to play better during the Jokic minutes. I do think this team has to at least to some degree figure out the non-Jokic minutes if they want to be that legit contender without Murray. And I don't look at, I look at this team as like having quality depth but if Michael Porter Jr. is going to play this poorly to where you can't even entertain, he's averaging under 10 minutes per game without Jokic on the court. Maybe they don't even, I don't think you want necessarily more than that. Do you want to play Michael Porter Jr.? You, know, you want your two best players on the court for as much as possible, but you need those minutes to be by far more productive. And he's just, you know, I don't, there, we can go deeper and say what he needs to do better. Um, but I just feel like he's missing a bunch of shots and looks that, that he was hitting last year and they need those to go in because that's going to drag them down he's getting clean looks they just aren't falling i think i think one fix right now while the second unit is in this early season malaise is moving monte morris to the bench just to get that steadying presence who can seek out his own shot on occasion i think that makes a lot more sense than having these just these lineups that are completely devoid of offensive ability but i do have one more stat just in support of Jokic being off to an unreal start to this season uh the b-ball index is adjusted adjusted rim point saved per 75 possessions leaderboard you want to guess where Jokic ranks at this stage of the season uh this third. is heading into games on november 1st third he's fifth of he's course fifth. and the top 10 we'll just we'll go through them real fast because I, I think it, it it helps show the validity of this metric isaiah stewart in 10th rashawn holmes ninth nikola vucevic eighth Clint Capella, seventh, Mo Bamba, sixth, Jokic, fifth, Jakob Pertl, fourth, Rudy Gobert, third, Joel Embiid, second, and Miles Turner, first. It's a pretty solid list of bigs to be surrounded by when you're talking about rim protection numbers. Yeah, look, and the, the stuff with Jokic, too, it does feel like the Nuggets are always really good early in the season defensively, and maybe that's anecdotally correct and just factually wrong. Every I just feel like in the start of every season, we talk about how oh, wow, Jokic is playing really aggressively on defense and he's coming up to the level of the screen. And at some point, it's like, hey, we got to stop thinking that this is new. This like this is how they've used Jokic. He has great hands. I'm curious to see whether it's something that sustains all year. It feels very much like uh, the Nuggets are always stingier than you'd expect. Maybe at the beginning and the end of the year, like sort of that bookend. But what happens during the middle? Um, overall, though, the fact that they've been better on defense than offense this year is probably almost encouraging. I wouldn't say it's definitely, but it's got to be almost encouraging. I think it's good news, ultimately, when you know that you had Jamal Murray coming back at some point. Tony Spookums, who's actually Anthony Morlachi, 
Hey, longtime fan, is there a statistic or group that can help relate if a team is fun to watch? Go Hornets. So I was assuming this was for a Hornets thing. I don't know. I mean, you can look at pace, but I think there's noise in that. I like to look at the average, and this isn't just a fun factor, but this is what I used. When I'm trying to see how fast a team is committed to playing, I want to look at the average time each possession lasts for them. And so the Nuggets, they're seventh overall, but they're first after a made shot. And that's how you know at 15.9 seconds, the next closest team is the Lakers at 16.2. There are, like, if you're going to play that fast after taking the ball out, that's a team that likes to push, likes to get at defenses before they're fully set. And I think that's a fair, in this case, it seems like an accurate barometer of how fun the, the Hornets can be can be to watch, but there are, I mean, you could look at probably a bunch of different, like depends on what you like about, I might look at which team is taking the most step back jumpers because I'm going to, I'm going to find that tantalizing. I think my favorite thing about this question is we might have found the question where I'm most confident in saying, just go with the eye test because like, yeah, like fast paced teams can be fun. The Washington wizards were the fastest team in the league last year. And I don't know that they were that much fun to watch on a nightly basis, uh, you know, th- there's a difference between teams getting out and running because they should and because they can. Uh, I don't know that it's it's ultimately a, a, an inherently subjective question because what you enjoy watching is going to be different. I mean, if if we can track like alley oops thrown, the step back jumpers, you know, you could you could look at how many unassisted field goals they are, but then you're going to be dealing with some James Harden dribble machines. You, you know, look at dunks too, but like that, some dunks are just not interesting. Absolutely. I, I don't know that I would have one single metric that truly works. I mean, like maybe the, the one I would lean to most would be like transition points per game, just because ultimately it is fun to watch the teams that aren't just getting out and running a lot, but are good at doing it. Maybe even transition points per possession. Or even frequency, because then that's like, it doesn't necessarily have to end well. They just know that Fewest they're trying- free throws allowed per game. Like, Something like that, maybe. Um, if anyone is curious, though, the Hornets... Stephen are, Curry's per team, like something yeah. like that. The Hornets are ninth in transition frequency, and they're 12th in transition efficiency. So they're... Um, and that's a great, a great set of numbers that would support them being fun. Here's an I think interesting... That that's, my, that's my ultimate answer, though. If I'm going to settle on one, it's, it's Steph Curry's per team. Let's stick with the the Hornets here from Jake G. And I think that answer, your final one is is sound. Is there a history, Jake G asks, is there a history of Miles Miles Bridges type improvement to start a season? If so, how sustainable has it been? There is, to my recollection and during the brief research I did, I have not seen anyone make the statistical leap necessarily when they're past their rookie to sophomore to third year, like three to four. I don't know that I've seen someone double their scoring output seeing their usage increase by nearly 10 percentage points. I will say when you look at his efficiency, like this is not something he's doing drastically different compared to last year. 61.4% on his twos. It comes on double the volume, but it's up from 59.3% last season. 37% on threes, again, coming on more volume, but he actually shot 40% from three last year. He's doing more work off the dribble when you're looking at him going inside the arc. I think his passing is like the same. It's more so reactionary than someone who has like this type of great foresight. That's not really a problem. I don't know what he is on defense aside from, I would call him positionally malleable, which I I do think is a mostly a a compliment. No one 
springs to mind when you're looking statistically at this, maybe to you, where I see this. And it's it's in terms of raw scoring, because like it's not like his assist numbers are up a ton. It's his usage has skyrocketed. And he's just he went from 12.7 points to 24.6. I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Like <laughs> this is a weird one, but the first name that came to mind, do you remember back in 2013 when Andrew Nicholson for the Orlando Magic? like kind of went off at the start of the year. He started with 18 points in the season opener on eight of 10 shooting then had 13, nine and 17 in the next three games. Like even that is at a much smaller scale and ultimately proved unsustainable. The best comparison might be like Harrison Barnes from this year, where all of a sudden the scoring numbers are just absolutely skyrocketing, except he's doing it in a 10th season. I think we've reached the point with bridges where it doesn't just feel like an early season aberration and maybe it's still too early to say that but it seems pretty clear that the hornets are intent on featuring him in the offense both in transition and within the half court and that he's responding well to it that he's playing with an ideal teammate in lamello ball who both wants to and can get him the ball in a lot of advantageous situations so i don't know that i have a great comparison because ultimately we remember where the numbers normalize to more than we do these ridiculously hot 10 games starts to a season. So there probably are others like this out there that we just forget about because they weren't ultimately sustainable. The one I thought about, and it's a similar timeline, year two to three, was 2018-2019 Siakam, where he went from eight points as a sophomore to 17 points as a as a third-year player, saw his usage skyrocket, the, the Raptors win the title that year. And it was also a situation where he was not the number one option for his team, and Miles Bridges is not you know, he's going to score, but like, he's not the one who's running the offense a majority of the time. Jalen Brown went from 13 to 20.3 in his fourth season, like maybe something like that, but even that's not quite on the same scale. But what I, what I took away from what you just said is that you're picking the Hornets to win the title. That is, I don't know how you got that from what I well, said. You said that when you're comparing it to Siakam, like the, the Raptors went on and won the title that year. So I see a pretty clear connection. Yeah, I mean, I guess is Gordon Hayward Kawhi in this instance? Is Lamelo Kawhi? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how we're that. That seems like quite the leap. But yes, Hornets are going to win the title. Um, this question comes from Paul Dolores. Are the Chicago Bulls for real? Yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't believe that they're a juggernaut in the Eastern Conference. That they're a contender, but I do think they're for real as a legitimate playoff team in the Eastern Conference. They have so much scoring firepower and it's clear that that guys like Alex Caruso, Javante Green, like these these lower minute high effort players are impacting the overall defensive intensity. I think that this we said it as soon as the transaction happened, but Lonzo Ball is a perfect fit for this team alongside Zach Levine, alongside DeMar DeRozan and the roster makes a lot more sense than it has in previous years. They are still benefiting from a pretty cushy start to their schedule, but you can only play the people who are in front of you and they've played them pretty damn well. I'm with you. Some things that concern me is I don't are, I don't think the defense is going to end up being this good. I just, I don't look at them, especially Patrick Williams is out for the season now expected to be with his wrist injury. Uh, They do play an aggressive style. And yet, like, they're not fouling. They're second in opponent turnovers for, so maybe it holds. And when you watch them, like, they feel really active. And I don't think, yes, in size and then maybe by extension, the scope of assignments that he can cover, I don't know that you're losing a ton going from Patrick Williams to Javante Green minutes. Green is just really good defensively. 
And then there are some things that you could look at and say, okay, this team is eighth in points scored per possession, and their starting lineup is just not performing up to snuff offensively yet. A lot of that, I think, is Vooch. Just is not one of the biggest disappointments by far. Almost made my biggest disappointment um, list when I did 10 for Bleach Report. It's just that he's been better than I expected defensively, so it felt weird including him. And he will normalize eventually. So there's still like, there needs to be more evidence to be found. But what we've seen, and this will tie into another question that I'll mention, um, we're getting to a point where like, once you get 10 games in, I think it was NBA.com did this study where it's like, it's normally 20 games are pretty telltale how the standings are going to finish, but that you can glean a lot, if not a majority of accurate information from the first 10 or 11 games of a season. And so we are quickly reaching that point. Like we're six, like six games is not a lot, but if they go through 10 games and they're eight and two, or they go through 12 games and they're nine and three, like, yeah, you're gonna have to take them seriously. I do think I land with you and there's nothing, I guess there's nothing scientific about my answer here. I just don't think that they're going to end up being right now. If you look at them, you would say, oh, they are one of the three or four most serious contenders in the East. I don't know if I eventually land there for them. I still have the Nets, the Hawks, the and the Bucks in front of them. I'm very much inclined to put the heat there at this point. So I feel I don't want to discredit what they've done, but like if we get to game like 12, 15, and their defense is still in the top five, then it's probably time to rethink even what would let's call it our hardwood Knox's optimistic takes on the bulls, because that becomes a whole different spectrum of outcomes for them. I'm, I'm comfortable pegging these bulls right around like five or six in the Eastern conference but at this point. That's and, where a lot of people had them though, is my point. Yeah. And yeah, I, I know. And I don't think that they've done enough to convince me to, to elevate that ceiling right now, but considering we're talking about an organization that has not made the playoffs since 2017, that hasn't won a playoff series since 2015. That's a great finish. I, I'm totally with you. I'm just saying, I think when people are asking this, they want to know if the Bulls are a legitimate title contender or not. And I would say like, no. we need to see. And, and the Bulls are not going to play at an 83.3 win percentage. <laughs> right. But I feel comfortable saying that. What would it, let's fast. Let's say this is their record through 12 games. They are 10 and two. They are seventh in defense, ninth in offense. Are you ready to call them a contender then? Or is it still too early for you? Let's see. They play Boston as we're recording this, then Philly, then Philly, then Brooklyn, then Dallas, and then Golden State. Yeah, if they're 10 and two, I'm ready to say that they're a legitimate contender. That's also, they have benefited at the beginning. You so played- far, they've beaten Detroit, the Zion William, the Zion Williamson list, New Orleans Pelicans. Zion list might again. be easier to say for future reference. It would be. <laughs> Detroit for a second time. Toronto in Toronto is, is a good win, but this that Toronto team is still figuring out what it is. And then the marquee victory was Saturday night beating the Utah Jazz. That's one and a half good wins of those first five. And, and that, in a nutshell, is why it's really hard to buy into it, being anything more than a validation of where they were expected to be before the season started. This next question is semi-related to this. Uh, Mike Armenta asks, statistically, how many games into a season is a good representation or indicator of where an NBA team will end up by season end? I, I So when I was poking around for this one, NBA.com recently did something where they mentioned that it was like 20 or 21 games is absolutely telltale of the standings, but they also just said that there's more of a correlation when you're 10 or 11 games in as well. I think also a few years ago, Tom Habistro, when he was at ESPN, did a study on this, and it was very clear, like 19 to 21 games. I hope I'm not misremembering correctly. I couldn't find it. You're not. Um, so 
that would be the, like when you get to 20 games, like that would be the Adam and I can sit here and say everything we just said about the bulls. And it would hold very little weight, the wait and see approach or it would hold a lot less weight if the bulls were this good 20 games into the season, because it seems like at the quarter pole. And a lot of that, I think what goes into that at, at that point, you've probably seen some teams who started out hot have faded. There are maybe more sellers, teams that are catering to more gradual timelines, and there's just more of a distinct pecking order. So it's just easier to separate once you get maybe 14 to 15 in, and then you let those games unfold a little bit more. I'm just curious whether this season could be a little bit different because of how many teams are ostensibly trying to win now, where maybe that 20 to 21 game mark still makes sense. But as the NBA.com article proposed, maybe 11 and 12 games really isn't that telltale just because of how many teams are so engaged in trying to, you know, the play in tournament, having that type of impact, trying to win now. Look, there's a reason that at NBA math and our rolling team ratings that we have it set up to be a team's performance over a 20 game stretch and that we don't publicize those results until we're 20 games into the season, because that is typically the benchmark for when things from a statistical standpoint become more indicative of season-long performance. I don't have any numbers to back this up, frankly, because I have not had enough time to really dive in and test out the hypothesis, but I would suspect that it is becoming a little bit less indicative of the season-long results as the NBA shifts more and more into the three-point heavy league that it has become, just because there's a little bit more variance in outcomes on a night-to-night basis, so you can have a little bit more noise over that 20-game sample. I would wager that whereas it might have been like 18 games 20 years ago, that it's going to be more like 25 games these days. But again, like there is nothing backing that up. That is pure conjecture. Seems like a pretty smart, informed type of guess in my in my it total could also be really dumb what's that it could also be really dumb i have no idea that's how i approach most of the things you say that's could be really dumb let's see so this next question comes from the nba chicken who has the worst bench unit and why is it the nuggets i will say i might be more inclined to like kind of wait and just see like let the season develop before we're gonna look at the because i look at the nuggets actual bench players and i think you can make a case that okay this this offense might end up being pretty big. Like, who are you running the offense through if you keep your rotation the same? I'm just fewer than 10 games in. I don't know whether I'm going to declare a state of emergency for any team's depth unless you thought it was going to be like this huge issue coming in. I will say, statistically, the Nuggets bench has the worst point differential per 100, the second worst point differential per 100 possessions. Would you care to venture who has the worst? Probably the Thunder because they don't have any talent. No, I would just argue that the talent is so close together that the bench will actually... Oh, you play. mean differential between starters and bench or just differential between the bench and the opposing bench? It's the bench and the opposing bench. It's just the minutes that I think the reserves have played on the court. However, NBA.com is sorting it there. The Orlando Magic have the worst. And that's at least in part fueled by their starting lineup has been a lot better than I expected. So you're dealing with that drop-off there. If I had to pick another candidate, and I know you could say that Thunder having the worst bench, if you were looking from a gap of starting lineup talent to bench talent on the same team, maybe you would view this differently. Um, I think this selection might fit both sets of criteria. I am officially concerned about the Boston Celtics reserves. I know everyone kind of touted them as this super deep team. but When you kind of look at their top five guys to what's coming up after Josh Richardson's not the same Josh Richardson. I guess there's a case if like Dennis Schroeder is, is having a, a good game. I'm just, I don't know. You're the players you're starting 
it, it, it always looked like the Nuggets were going to get, or the Nuggets, the Celtics were going to get pretty iffy after their top six or seven guys. And right now they have the third worst bench differential in the league. So, and I, there's, you know, there's probably a lot of noise in there too, because you have like Schroeder has started three games for them this year. Williams has started two because Al Horford missed, missed some time, but like looking at their core bench players, and I would still include Schroeder in that one, like Josh Richardson, Romeo Langford, Peyton Pritchard. And like, they haven't even, you know, Peyton Pritchard shooting terribly. Uh, Romeo Langford has been a lot better than I expected this season, but that's a bench where I feel like it could be a feast or famine type situation. So I would personally keep my eye on them. And I also look that the Thunder bench is going to be pretty bad. So like, if you want to throw that out there, I think we should just throw out all the like bottom feeding teams because yeah, Detroit is going to have just a terrible, terrible bench unit as is Houston, as is Oklahoma city, as is Orlando. So where do you land on this? The Pelicans bench. It's not very fun at all, but I'm just, do they fall into the bad team? Because even without Zion, I I think, I think they have to right now, especially because without Zion and without Brandon Ingram for a portion of this season already, like it's, it's gotten even thinner. I guess what I'm just, I'm wondering how he would impact their second unit offense. Because right. if you if you put him in the starting lineup, he probably replaces Herb Jones. And then your second unit, like in terms of creators, is still the same. Like Sadaransky's not playing this huge role. What is Kyra Lewis doing for you? I guess you can move Nikhil Alexander Walker to the bench, but is he even ready to sort of run those units? And so it feels like they could be just one of the worst mm-hmm. offensive benches in the league. And I will say a lot of people have done the whole oh, I can't believe they gave up Lonzo Ball for that return. I actually agree, but Lonzo Ball was not the guy. I think he's in like the fourth percentile of pick and roll efficiency right now. It's like he wasn't the guy that was going to settle units on his own. I think they should have kept him. I want to make that clear, but that's addition. We both did. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the disingenuous argument to make is, oh, they would be much better off looking at their, let's say reserve offense or just offensive depth, creation depth with him, because that's just never been his game. Can I nominate the Phoenix Suns as a sneaky contender for this answer? They didn't. You can, and I just want to add very quickly, I was shocked, and this is a terrible look, that they declined a third-year option on Jalen Smith, the 10th overall pick in the 2019 draft. Uh, Not sorry, 2020 a draft. great sign. But yeah, I mean, like right now, that bench, that bench unit, the true second team, is looking at two of the three between Jalen Smith, JaVale McGee, and Frank Kaminsky, Cam Johnson, and then two of the three of Landry Shamit, Alfred Payton, and Cameron Payne. Ugh. It's hard to get excited about that one. Like, unless you're, unless you're banking on campaign being exactly what he was during last postseason's last postseason's run to the NBA finals. And even then it's not that good, especially for a legitimate contending team. Yeah, that's, and look, missing Dario Sarge hurts them a lot. I'm just not sure that he would totally revamp that. I do think, and his deal wasn't that dissimilar. Like you couldn't, you still had basically half your MLE. There wasn't a way to like keep Tory Craig. That was, to me, that was borderline, excuse me. That was borderline shameful that they let him walk. I know you got Abdul Nader back on a good deal, but he was so important defensively and was hitting threes for you. It's just a subtly good offensive rebounder. That was just, these are all things, again, no one was going to like run the offense for the second unit, but that's something that would have definitely improved their, their immediate depth. And I'm just, you know, you had, I think what they have 4.9 million left over of the mid level. That's actually not that much less than Tory Craig ended up signing for. And you're going to tell me that you couldn't have gotten JaVale for slightly less than 
than 5.5. So I'm, I'm with you. They could be a nomination. I think there is just some talent there. So I would be inclined to think that they'll get better. It's just like looking at their starting lineup data is once again, terrible, but that unit was able to progress to a better mean. I would expect them to do the same, but that's a, I think that's a, a really good selection. And I don't think that the bench is to blame for Phoenix's slow start. I mean, like, yeah, Mikael Bridges has been disappointing. Devin Booker has been a little bit disappointing. Jay Crowder has been an abject disaster, but the bench does not have any standout players right now. And unless Cam Johnson dials back the clock about a year, it doesn't look like that's going to change. It feels like unless Johnson is the guy to take a step forward and he could very well move into the starting lineup. This is a, a low floor, low ceiling bench, which is not what you want as a contender with a lot of older pieces. They are still my title pick. Don't you worry, Phoenix Suns fan. They are still my title pick because I refuse to move off them. Here's an interesting question, and we actually have not talked about him that much since the season started. Calvin Johnson asked, what is Evan Mobley's ceiling? I want you to take this one first so that I can gloat afterwards because I know that we we diverged a lot in our pre-draft analysis of Evan Mobley. Is there, so I was wrong about Evan Mobley and I want to make it clear. I never said he was going to be a bad NBA player. I didn't love the fit in Cleveland. I also didn't think he deserved to be like third on everybody's board. Maybe I've just been jaded against drafting bigs in general. Um, I also, look, you need to take my draft takes. I say this all the time with a, you know, a metric ton of salt because I only get shin deep into the draft after the college season's basically already over. I did not know he could guard all five positions. They, they have him on the perimeter so much that it's almost, if Jared Allen wasn't on the court a bunch with him, you would almost hate how much he was on the perimeter for them. The way he can see the game too in the half court or offensively, just having another creator to go through is just absolutely mind melting. I don't know what his ceiling is because he's not, he's people have called him Giannis 2.0. There's a different, he's just not as explosive as Giannis. I've seen some Chris Bosch, Anthony Davis comparisons floated around there. And I just feel like his game is not as sudden as Anthony Davis is. Might be the best way to put it. His offensive ceiling, I don't want to say it's higher than Davis is, but it's definitely, he has a more expansive portfolio of skills. Davis has never been that type of passer. For, Especially for when Davis was coming into the league when his offense was like, a legitimate question mark. Is it like a bigger Draymond Green? I don't know if that's, is that like too far? I just, I can't come up with them. I'm genuinely asking. I, I don't have one either because he does feel like this new evolutionary big, I guess, because of his size, we have to call him that, but he's not really that he can fill so many different roles. And I think that's the answer to this question is that we don't have a comparison for him because there are so many different directions that he could blossom. And the future is even more tantalizing than I thought it would be. And I thought that he was closer to being the number one pick than dropping out of the top three. Uh, just in terms of, of sheer talent going into the draft. Like he, if you're a Cleveland fan, be super excited about him and, and what he's going to become because we just don't know. And it's baffling that a rookie looks this advanced this soon, especially as a 20 year old rookie who's coming in without a lot of high level collegiate experience and can just capably fill so many different roles and niches on both ends of the floor this early in his first season. Like I I have no idea where we should put his ceiling right now. Do you think his ceiling is higher on defense or offense? I have no idea. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say probably defense because just that versatility to like truly cover all five positions is what every single team 
in the NBA covets right now. And I don't know how much I trust his long range jumper at this point. And that's a significant hole for anybody in today's NBA. So I think probably by default, defense has to be the answer. But at the same time, given what he's already shown off the dribble as a passer, as a finisher, like I don't really want to rule out the idea that he could become a three-point marksman. He's hitting 80% of his free throws on 3.6 attempts per game. Again, as a 20-year-old rookie. Do you think that's his swing skill? Like, this is what's going to separate him from being an all-NBA staple to a slash MVP candidate yeah. to whatever, that that you still yeah. think that's a swing skill? I, I think so. I mean, it feels like a Bam Adebayo-like development is pretty realistic for him, but I think that he can also exceed that at this point which might sound hyperbolic, but like watch him play and then try to think anything is hyperbolic. Yeah, he's so good. I just, man, you talk about prospects I missed on, and especially when you talk about prospects. But I get it, because you were never questioning the skill. You were questioning just the fit in today's NBA and whether it's worth spending a pick on a big. And I don't think either of us realize the extent to which he's not really a big, even if he does stand seven feet tall. Right. And it's, I don't know that I'm sure it's happened that I've missed on a prospect that I still thought would be good, but like, wasn't that high. Like this is, we're talking about someone who I think people generally thought was going to be a really good basketball player and has somehow obliterated expectations just even by that type of, of measure. So great, great job by Cleveland. I still don't know that I love Allen and him long-term, but when you watch them now, it's just. It, I, b- yeah. I believe they're referred to as Frobley now. What? A Frobley, I did see that. I actually like it, so I'll roll with it. As long as they like it. I don't like using nicknames that players don't like. I was gutted to hear that Darius Garland didn't like Sexland, but then I think he came out and said he was actually fine with it, that that was a joke, so we get to call them Sexland still. Cleveland with a nice dyad nicknames right now. Shout out, Cleveland. We have two Raptors-related questions here um, that apparently I have to scroll through because, oh, Armored Monkey asks, how has Scotty Barnes' start been compared to other great rookies? So it's so early, but I just did this to to sort of filter it out. There's only been one rookie in NBA history who has averaged 25 points at 10 rebounds, one steal per 100 possessions while shooting 58% or better on twos. It was DeAndre Ayton, who I don't even think that you would say was this all-time great rookie. For me, Scotty Barnes has just been most encouraging as someone with the feel as a passer, and then his mid-range game has come along faster than I thought it was. Shooting is clearly going to be a swing skill for him. And I think he's going to eventually end up being like a very disruptive defender who isn't, you know, doesn't need to be someone that you need to worry about necessarily fouling a ton. And even now, like, you know, given what he does, 2.8 fouls per 36 minutes, that's not high by any stretch. So um, he's been, look, the biggest shock with him, and I think everyone was puzzled how the Raptors went with him over Jalen Suggs. And I think when you look at the structure of the team now, the two things that stand out is they very clearly needed a bigger wing initiator type to maximize Fred Van Fleet, which Jalen Suggs is not. And then also Scotty Barnes does not look like the project that he was supposed to be. Like he just looks like someone who's ready to play now. So I, I don't know where he's going to end up for the season, but that ends up being like a wow Masai and, and his front office and his scouts and just anyone who went into sort of impacting this decision. They were, clearly might have just been the the smartest people in the room here because Scotty Barnes is just he looks great. I think Scotty Barnes is to me what Evan Mobley is to you. Where I thought he'd be a really good NBA player, 
I didn't know that it would happen this quickly, that his ceiling would look quite this high. I mean, we are ultimately talking about a guy who averaged 10.3 points per game, 23.8 points per 100 possessions during his lone season at Florida State. And in the NBA, granted only in a seven-game sample, he's already up to 18.1 points per game and 25.5 points per 100 possessions. And he looks good doing it because he can already fill so many different roles. He looks comfortable operating off the ball and filling cracks within a defense. He looks comfortable handling the ball, passing off of the bounce. Like these are skills that it seemed like he could have because he was that proverbial Swiss army knife prospect in this year's draft class, but it was supposed to take time for him to put that together. He was supposed to be making more of an impact as this game changing, versatile defender, especially alongside OG Ananobi where they could just switch on everything. And for him to be this advanced this quickly on the offensive end, another guy where it just seems like the sky is the limit where he could very clearly be Toronto's best player in a few years. I need to see like more of just the offensive development, but there's for sure that type of a ceiling. And if we want, if you want to sort of get into the just um, historical results here. So he's on pace right now. He's averaging, this is the perfect way to do this, but I'm just trying to see like an impact of a rookie who plays a lot. Um, 0.16 wind shares per 48 minutes. The last five rookies to do that while playing at least 1500 minutes. Again, he's not at that point yet. Ben Simmons, in 2017-2018, Nikola Jokic, 2015-2016, Nikola Mirotic, 2014-2015, Kawhi Leonard, 2011-2012, and Chris Paul in 2005-2006. If he sticks, and I'm not saying he will, that would be hella good company to, to be in. And yes, I just said hella. It's 2021, just in case you'd forgotten. I know. I, I Should I say what's up after that, too? <laughs> uh, it's uh, This rookie class in general has been really fun to this point in the season. Like it's, it's really early, but you know, even beyond those guys that we just talked about in Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes, like Chris Duarte and Franz Wagner and Josh Giddy and Alperen Shangun and Delano Banton for Toronto and Bones Highland in Denver. Like there's been a lot of fun contributors. Two things. You're going to know this in a minute, but what a friggin' segue to our next question that you just made without knowing it, by the way, Adam does these things off the cuff, but two, Franz Wagner, after watching him in summer league, I was just, I wasn't out on him, but I was just sort of like, eh. And then seeing that he was playing a ton of three and I still think he should have been more of a four. He's a dark horse rookie of the year. Kevin. That dude can play. Yeah. It's so early right now. If he just continues to do what he's doing on offense and then you see some of these other guys fade, he would have a legitimate, you know, people will still gravitate towards the bigger names. If Scotty Barnes is still there, if Evan Mobley is still playing like this, obviously he's probably been the third or fourth, no worse than the fifth best rookie right now. Absolutely. His touch around the basket, so much better than I anticipated. Just the feel for the game. It's it's really impressive. Orlando has something there. This question comes from Omir Rania. Delano, Delano Banton. That's the question. Mind melting, mind blown emoji, fireworks emoji. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit that I don't know much about him. Like, I know that he was a second-round draft pick, that he went to Nebraska. One of those guys where he just was not on my pre-draft radar. I did not have a scouting report going in, but he has looked like that do-everything role player that Toronto seems to be able to find whenever Masai Ujiri wants one. I mean, I, I don't know that he's going to develop into a star because I don't know how scalable this production is. 
But the fact that he has handled himself nicely on the defensive end while guarding wings, while guarding big men, the fact that he's hitting half of his three-pointers to this point, like if he can develop into a three and D player for this team, like it's another another notch in uh, in the cap for for Ujiri here. The his defense is absolutely absurd. And I saw there was like sections of Raptors Twitter that like weren't excited that people were focusing on a shooting. This is like a defensive prospect who can put pressure on the, the defense closer to the basket, but like shooting becomes a swing skill then in that situation. And just right now he's shooting 43% from mid range, even better on long mid range jumpers. And then he's just, he's, what is he? A total of like two of four from three or something like that. He's uh three of six. So look, that what a find by them. And I think that answers the other question uh, that we had was, where was this? Uh, who's been the second, the best second round rookie this season so far came from, from Johnny. I'm curious if anybody else sort of stands out there for you, but I think him by far and away has been, Delano Banton's been the best after him. If I had to pick, I think I'd go with Herb Jones. He's also been a monster defensively. And then you talk about shooting being a swing skill. If he can hit threes, like that's the, he's going to be just, an absurdly good NBA player. I think Banton is, is the obvious choice right now. Um, Jeremiah Robinson Earl playing some big minutes. Uh, but beyond that, like no one has really gotten on the floor. Uh, the, the only other guy with over 50 minutes to this point is Ayo Desumu, but he hasn't really stood out. His shot hasn't been falling yet. And then, uh, Sandro and I have not yet learned how to pronounce his his last name, which is bad of me. So I'm not going to try right now. Um, but I, th- I think it's pretty clearly Banton. Yeah, I, I I think Herb Jones has a case. But when Banton has outperformed what would have been my expectations for him offensively, I think I'm with you where it's clearly been Banton to this point. So let's get let's see if we can get through a, a couple more here we have a question on an awards but i'd like to do a pod on that separately so let's uh let's let's skip that one da, 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 da. that was a mean one about the about the denver nuggets um after the Doing first live couple, carson cox i have these bookmarked i just keep scrolling past them carson cox asks after the first couple games of the season who do you think won the wizards lakers russell westbrook trade <laughs> Probably the Wizards. You know, they've been more competitive than expected. They managed to parlay Westbrook into a number of different contributors. I do think that there is something to plumb in, in, in Kyle Kuzma, even if he's continued to be a little bit inconsistent in Washington. Like there are skills there on both ends of the floor if he can piece them together. Montrez Harrell has been awesome for this team. Um Westbrook has not fit in Los Angeles to this point. And I think that's the biggest thing. It was always going to be an awkward fit. I am wildly concerned about the Lakers. The Anthony Davis, the five minutes have not been great. And I think when you look at why it makes sense because last year you had LeBron or Kyle Kuzma at the four, and then also KCP and Alex Caruso, both, or at least one of would have been on the court. Kuzma, KCP and Caruso are all gone. Talon Horton Tucker hasn't played yet this season. So you have mellow at the four during a lot of those minutes. That's going to leave you vulnerable defensively. I'm with you on the Westbrook stuff. I think I think it was clear that the Wizards won it in the moment for what they needed to do, just based off what the team needed to accomplish. With the Lakers, I think they shortened their rotation. They shrunk the floor. And maybe they elevated their ceiling without LeBron, but they didn't maybe. do much functionally to elevate it with LeBron. The Wizards deepened their rotation, broke up one huge contract into more digestible ones. So if they want to pivot, they can. 
And that's huge because what if Bradley Beal wants, I mean, I don't know why he'd want out at this point, but like you were built to sort of compete in the East now, but if you need to pivot, you're able to do that a lot easier, not just this season, but next season as well. So looking at where both the teams were, you can understand why you, you can understand. I wouldn't have done it. So I want to make that clear, but you can understand why the Lakers grew, went with Russell Westbrook, even in the moment though, if you didn't think it was a disaster trade for the Lakers, and maybe it turns out not to be a disaster trade for the Lakers, it was pretty clear that the Wizards just got the better end of that deal, given what both teams were angling to do. Where if you're the, the Lakers, you want to you know, increase your championship ceiling or, or without question, beyond argument, bring yourself closer to a title. They didn't do that. There was, this was a, a hit-or-miss acquisition. It was combustible. The Wizards just did something discernible, distinct, and that was absolutely huge, given that they were sort of trapped and wandering in, in the wilderness to that point. And I think the other thing that has happened here that I hesitate to even bring up because I don't want it to be true is that this team is still like it needs LeBron James to be able to turn back the clock. And I don't remember LeBron getting off to a less notable start to a season. Like, granted, still trying to get healthy. He's only played five games, so we're dealing with a small sample on a team that is adjusting with Russell Westbrook in the fold. But like, he hasn't averaged this few points per game since his rookie season, this few rebounds per game since his rookie season, this low of field goal percentage since his rookie season. And he's doing that while playing 37.2 minutes per game, which is his most since 2016-17. It just it doesn't feel like that same ceiling is there like that same switch is there and maybe it's because he's just not really putting the pedal to the metal at this early stage of the season trying to allow guys to figure out their roles on this new look Lakers team but I, I don't know like it's it's the same feeling I had during the playoffs last year where it just didn't feel like he had that same aura of inevitability except magnified this, this time. Like he's still an amazingly effective basketball player who is unquestionably an all-star and going to be in the all NBA conversation. But it just, I, I continue to get this feeling that father time is finally starting to affect him a little bit. And that's the last thing that this Lakers team needs, because if that's the case, this ceiling is drastically lower. There's definitely a concern to be said, you mentioned his scoring and then also just looking at his uh, rim frequency if he is going to, and just to put that into context, he's reaching the room on 36% of his shots this year. That would be his lowest mark since 2008, 2009, which that was still prime LeBron, but it's, you know, the past two years have even been a drop-off from his first two seasons in LA. I will say what's probably encouraging is his three-point shooting. I mean, and he's taking some really difficult attempts, but I'm with you. There's the blow-by aspect doesn't seem like it's there. Maybe he just works his way into form. I think a bigger part of that is just the spacing around him. It's easier to get by guys when you have room to maneuver. But I think it's also manifesting on the defensive end, and that's probably where there's even more of an adjustment period. But he's looked less involved and less impactful on defense than I can ever remember LeBron's, Le LeBron being. Which is going to screw them up if it remains that way. I do think watching him, it feels more of like a choice than a... I think so too. Which is, And I don't ever want to write off LeBron who, you know... I've rooted for the guy for almost two decades at this point. Um, just, I, it, it's tough to admit, but I think like it, it is a, a real conversation that has to happen and is probably happening internally in LA. Like, what do we do if LeBron is not all caps LeBron anymore? 
two final questions here. And this one's a very fascinating one. Uh, Ani essays asked, is DeJounte Murray a high-end starter or better right now? I think the answer is clearly better. He has been magnificent to start the season. I can't get over the, I don't know if you want to call it a leap, but they've put the keys to the offense in his hands. And no, the offense isn't great. He's gotten so much better as a passer. And like his escape dribbles where no, he's not necessarily going to hit these jumpers off of them, but he's going to find ways to just escape. Like the escapism dribbles are there and he's going to find guys, great chemistry with Jakob Pertl, just knowing where guys are moving. He's a, you know, he's not going to make the all-star team just because of how deep it is for the guards, but he's way better than a high end. So he's a fringe star for me right now. I'm just curious, would you put him, and I had thought about this, would you put him, even if it was as a dark horse in the most improved player discussion, I look at just what he, as a scorer, I don't know if there's been enough development there. His, his actual shooting is just not flashy or down from last year. Yeah. Like he's not shooting as well for mid-range or on threes as he was last year. So, but he is a better player. And I think he's, He's definitely, I wouldn't just call him a high-end starter. I would call him much better than that. I think slightly better than that is where I'm landing. I'm looking at the the Crystal Basketball Grades, the project that we do at NBA Math, where we grade every player going into the season on a 1 to 12 scale. And on that scale, the designation for a high-end starter, non-all-star, is a 7. An all-star candidate is an 8. A mid-tier starter, a solid starter, as we call it, is a 6. DeJounte Murray, in the preseason edition of this project, tied with Colin Sexton at 63rd overall at 6.56. So just making the cutoff for the high-end starter. Uh, you were actually the highest on him. You gave him an all-star grade of eight. You were the only one that did so. I gave him a seven. So it makes sense to me that you're still a little bit higher on him. But I think it's a pretty accurate thing to call him at this stage. And for anyone who cares, his number is 17.8 points, 8.8 assists, 8.5 rebounds. Uh, and he's been playing a lot. He's been playing more minutes, so like that is inflated by, by design. He's shooting 45.9% on twos, which would is lower than last year. He's also shooting 31.8% on threes, which is basically right in line with last year. Um, I'm still pretty bullish on where he'd be there, but this might just be this might be peak DeJounte Murray, where there's going to be peaks and valleys, to repeat myself, as a scorer. But like he's a better passer, and he he probably should just not probably he should be mentioned in the all defense discussion basically every single year. It feels a little bit like the RJ Barrett discussion to me, where we know that he's a better basketball player, that he is a vastly improved basketball player, but it's just not conducive to the most improved player argument. The final question here, and this feels like a good place to wrap because we began the podcast mentioning this. Thomas Rodriguez asks. What's Jimmy Butler's TPA versus actual NBA player rank? So I have his TPA pulled up for this season. He is third in the league behind Giannis at number two. And as if there was ever any doubt, Nikola Jokic at number one. So he is third in TPA. Where would you rank him? Whether you want, let's do this two ways. Where would you rank him right now? The, based off only what we've seen. No other games coming sure. as the player in the league. And then moving forward, what would you project him as for the rest of the year? I think. At this stage of the season, it's a toss-up between him and Jokic for best player and MVP honors. If we were just basing it solely like a blind resume test where player reputations did not matter whatsoever, it's those two as the leaders of the NBA this season. I think you can have Kevin Durant, Giannis, maybe Paul George and Steph as like a, a, a 1B tier, but Butler is in that conversation for the absolute best player in the world based solely on what we've seen this season. He's a very high energy, high effort player. 
And given how much he's expended at the start of this year, I don't know how sustainable this peak version of him is. So I feel pretty comfortable saying that he's probably going to, you know, heavy air quotes here, regress into being eight to 10, which is about where you would have had him if you were optimistic heading into the season. And look, I think that's fair. Um, He has just been, there's nothing about his offensive game that's really changed, which is why I would be encouraged. Uh, and look, I want to get this on my chest. The reaction to Butler's offseason extension was overwhelmingly, uncomfortably pro-billionaire proprietor. Maybe that contract, which runs through his age 36 season, doesn't age well. Who cares? Keeping superstars is critical to championship runs. And the Heat, forget about their championship chances. I would argue that they might be the most win-now team in the NBA. Even more so, maybe not more so than the Lakers because Bam Adebayo is younger than Davis, but just looking at what they did with Lowry, giving Butler the extension. Look, they're one of the three to five most win-now teams in the league. What's equally cringy, just because someone signs a deal that you don't like in some, it doesn't mean that they're automatically going to start sucking. Like this is, worst case scenario is maybe the final two years, final three years of the five total years left on his deal look bad. We still have like at least two years, I would argue, of peak Jimmy Butler basketball. And he's coming off what was arguably a career best campaign. People only seem to remember there was that flame out in the playoffs. He was probably exhausted. The Heat were coming off the shortest offseason in sports history. If you want to weight it to some extent, sure. But that's not the Jimmy Butler that you're just going to remember. So I'm, I almost wouldn't, wouldn't even play the it's still early caveat here. He's shooting a worse percentage from mid-range. He's at 37.5% from three, but he's actually taking fewer threes. So that's, even if that comes down, it's not this huge part of his game. And the new focus on like these organic offensive movements, they haven't impacted him. He's getting to the line basically just as often. And I think when you've looked at him, he's always felt more like a natural brute force than sort of this like inorganic off, 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 off Broadway play actor. And I'm just throwing shade at James Harden there. So I, no, do I think, do I think he's going to, 25 plus points on 62 plus true shooting percentage all year. My guess would take the under on both, but this could wind up if the heat care enough about the regular season. I think that might be the biggest caveat of all here. I might, as of right now, he's clearly top two, top three on the MVP ballot. Jokic is, I think Jokic is number one. I don't know. Butler might be there anyway, regardless. Like I said, it's a toss up. I do think that his place in the MVP ballot, let's say top three is eminently sustainable because what are we, I'm just I'm looking at him but but there's a different there's a difference sorry sorry to interrupt there but like I'm answering from the standpoint of like player rankings not MVP ballot because I do think given his importance to the heat that his spot on an MVP ballot supersedes his placement in player rankings so yes yeah that's a great point I guess where I would diverge is I would think he was probably eight to ten last year and because he's been better so far I mean you started naming the people that I would definitely take over him and let's play the brutally honest card there's Giannis, there's Jokic, I go Steph, I go Durant. That is it. That I'm guaranteeing for the rest of the season. That you're absolutely guaranteeing. That like LeBron, we already mentioned the concerns there. And you know that I've been more broke right. on LeBron's aging curve than than you, for sure. And there are other players that can work that, you know, James Harden. What about Luca? No. Oh no. No. Look, Embiid. I look, Embiid, maybe is he gonna play enough? Healthy Kawhi. He's not playing this season. If he does, it's going to be like 15 games probably. Who would you guarantee beyond the four that I mentioned? I guess would be my question. Guarantee. 
I'm comfortable putting Luca in there because no matter how much Jason Kidd tries to fuck him up, he's still just that good. Yeah. But beyond that, like that's, that's where I think, and again, like, you know, as, as I've spent more and more time doing this, I've, I've gotten, I've, I've gained more affinity for ranking in tiers rather than, than just specific ranks. I enjoy the rankings discussion in general, but I I do agree with you. And I know Seth part now of the athletic is, and the mid range theory book is pretty bullish on the the tiers. And I I do agree there. That's definitely fair. Yeah. I mean, like, again, looking at the crystal basketball project, Butler checked in at 16th. That's too low. Um, I I think that he's, I think he's, he was 16th. Who's responsible name names right now. Honestly, no one was. What did I give him? You I and Brian Toporek were the only people to give him a 10. Everyone else gave him a nine. Cowards. You're all cowards. And I love every single person who participated, I think. But you're all cowards. But I think, like, you know, you said Giannis, Jokic, KD, and Steph. I'm going to throw Luka in that top tier. Maybe we can have, two like, sub-tiers within that top tier. But then I think, like, you're looking at Embiid, Harden, LeBron. Lillard, Anthony Davis, Paul George. Not going to mention LeBron at all. LeBron. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and like Jimmy Butler. I think that's a reasonable next year. Let's throw Gobert in there. Who's just been phenomenal to start the season. You want to talk about a guy who deserves some love on MVP ballots right now. You know, we haven't mentioned at this point, his offense has been fantastic. It's a wild that let's say the betting consensus appears to be catching up. Because he's better than twenty to one to win MVP right now, and just for to, for context, Jimmy Butler's forty nine to one at this moment. I think Gobert was nineteen to one or something. That's people will quibble. They think he should be third or fourth, whatever, and he doesn't whatever. have third or fourth best odds. But just knowing what people value in the MVP discussion, the fact right. that Gobert absolutely sniffing twenty to one is incredible. But point being, I think that that Butler is firmly in the midst of that like six to twelve tier. Where you have him in that is immaterial to me. I don't care if you have him 12th, if you have him 6th. I think he firmly belongs in that same tier as LeBron, Embiid, Harden, Dame, Anthony Davis, like those those names. Granted, that that relies on James Harden and Damian Lillard remembering that they're James Harden and Damian Lillard, but that's for another discussion. This was fantastic as usual. Thank everyone for their great questions. Um, some of the takes are already aging poorly because it looks like the Knicks will be five and two instead of six and one because the Raptors have decided never to miss a shot from beyond the arc. Also, shout out to the person who went in our comments and said we didn't talk about the Jazz in the last podcast, even though they have the best record in the NBA when we were talking about basically surprises. The Jazz having the best record in the NBA, Rudy Gobert being this good, it's not a surprise. And I don't know that we do the best job talking about every team we're not just focusing on like the smaller market. So I would just like to say, I know I'm biased, but to that person who I will not name, fuck you. Thank you to everyone else who delivered. I'm sorry, that got under my skin because of how much we actually talk about the jazz. Like if anyone came at us and said, we don't talk enough about the nuggets or the jazz on this podcast, I'm sorry. You had Gobert, I think fourth on your MVP ballot last year. So yep. I'm going to get defensive and play that card there. We've, we've had a couple of videos about how like Gobert com- continues to be just massively underrated. And we're not, look, we're wrong all the time. I'm wrong most of the time. I'm sure that we don't talk about the, you know, maybe we didn't talk about the Cavs enough or I mean, we did talk about Evan Mobley, a bad example. We don't talk about the Pistons enough or something. I apologize. We cover the league at large. I think we are only moderately insufferable. And that comment implied that we were exceedingly insufferable. So it naturally got under my skin a little bit. 
Anyway, if you've made it this far, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardware Knox wherever you get your podcasts. Five-star ratings and written reviews help us out a ton on iTunes, whether you use it or not. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com. Search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. Until next time, we'll leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, getting some run in Dallas. And I saw a subgenre of Mavericks Twitter clamoring him to start. Frank Neal Kena.